Thank you, Robert. I really like that giant gummy fish. <laughs> Pretty cool. Um, my name is uh, Pastor Chris. I'm one of the associate pastors here today. If you're visiting, we want to welcome you. Uh, I want to say that we have a blue Bible in front of the chair uh, in front of you. And so if you're visiting and you don't have a Bible, please take that, use that. It's our gift to you. Uh, we believe the Word of God should be in everyone's hands. And so uh, please consider using and taking that today. Well, the darkest hour is just before dawn. Have you heard of that saying before? The darkest hour is just before dawn? Kind of a pretty common saying. People have said it for a long time. It actually, it's actually came from a, an English scholar and preacher named Thomas Fuller in the 17th century. So it's been around. The darkest hour is just before dawn. And you, you know the expression is meant to give you hope, isn't it? In times of difficulty, in times of darkness, um, that there's kind of a hope on the horizon, if you will. However, if we're honest, in the midst of those storms of our lives, we don't usually see that clearly, do we? The storm seems never-ending. The storm seems so dark for so long. I wonder if you've ever felt that way. I wonder if you've kind of thought this way and wondered, well, things seem to be getting worse and worse. It's in these dark times we realize how little control we actually have in life, don't we? Things don't go as expected. You know, you started off going this way and suddenly things start to happen before you know, you know it, you're way over here and you're like, I don't even know how I got here. And worse, I don't know how to get back. You know, jobs go south. You know, you're doing a job, things aren't working right. You know, people are waiting on you, they're yelling at you, your boss is yelling at you, and you're, you don't even know how to fix the situation that you're in. You don't know how to get from point A to point B. You're not in ultimate control. Perhaps you're planning a trip, excited for this trip, and, you know, you get there, and the airplane's late, the luggage gets lost, weather doesn't cooperate, and maybe you ate something that just doesn't agree with you, you know? Again, you realize you're not in ultimate control, are you? Maybe it's, you know, you're, you're into exercise, you eat healthy, you know, you love your walks, you love your jogs, you know, and suddenly you get sick. And you're thinking, how? How did I get sick, you know? I mean, I take my vitamins, I work out all the time, and you still get sick. Not in ultimate control, are you? Perhaps you can't even really put a finger on what the problem is. You're struggling with anxieties and fears and despair and worry, and they seem to be bringing you down and down and down into the depths. Sure, the darkest hour is just before dawn, but how do you even know if you've reached that darkest hour yet? How do you stay afloat? How do you have hope when you don't know where you're going and how you're getting back? And if you're getting back. Christian, what do you do when you are constantly reminded that you're not in control? What do you do? Well, today we're going to 
look at this in Acts 27. So if you have your Bibles, please follow along in Acts 27. We're going to be reading the whole chapter today with our aim to try to help answer this question for us today. But before we read, why don't I open our time in prayer? Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we so desperately need you every moment of every day. Lord, we pray that you would give us grace, give me grace to preach this message, grace for people to hear and apply it, help us to see through the storms in life, through the sun on the horizon, Lord, we ask this in Christ's name, amen. So if you have your Bibles, follow along as I read from Acts 27, it says, and it, w- and it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius, embarking in a ship of Adramantium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in, in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and of the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Verse 13. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along, running under the lee of a small island called Cotta. We managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. And after hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on, on, sorry, on surface, they lowered the gear and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you, take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of of God, to whom I belong and to whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. 
but we must run aground on some island. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms, and a little farther on, they took another sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down the four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and, and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors for the bow, Paul said to the centurion soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. So then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. Verse 33, as day was about to dawn, Paul urged them to all take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you, take some food. It will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. And then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, that, but they noticed a bay with a beach on it, on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, and at the same time, loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, and then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The boat stuck and remained unmovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump aboard first and make for land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to the land. Well, we find in our opening verses that the destined road becomes the difficult road. The destined road becomes a difficult road. This is found in verses 1 through 12. See, Paul had appealed to, appealed to Caesar. And so, therefore, to Caesar he will go. He was destined to go to Rome because the Romans said he was going to go. But also, in Acts 23.11, if you recall, we read that God told that Paul was to testify in Rome. He was destined to, to make his way to Rome. See, Paul, though, is probably not going probably the way he had envisioned he was going to go. See, he's a prisoner. Now, he's a unique prisoner because he is a Roman, and we know that there was no real evidence against him. He could have been set free, but yet he's still a prisoner. And as a prisoner, he is not in control of his situation. In our opening verses, we find that it, was, it says it was decided that they should set sail for, for Italy. It was decided. Paul didn't decide. Others decided for him. And again, it says they, they delivered Paul to a centurion. Paul didn't deliver himself. Others delivered Paul to the centurion. So they get on this boat, and this first ship that they board is not, it's not, not meant for open water travel. You know, it's a smaller boat. It's a, it's a coastal vessel. It was meant to, to kind of hop along all the ports along the shore. And so it, it's kind of like taking a short flight from London to Toronto before you hit the big airplanes and fly over the ocean, right? It's kind of like that. 
And so in these opening verses, we don't really see much difficulty, do we? But that's usually how it starts, isn't it? Some days start just as they intend. It's pretty easy. But see, after stopping in Sidon, where Paul was able to visit some friends, we see the, the road starts to become a little difficult, right? We've been there. See, the journey, if you will, starts to have potholes in there, you know, and apparently the wind, we read, it starts to really pick up, and it really becomes difficult on this journey. And Luke records how difficult this wind was in several passages in our text today, but the situation should remind us and everyone on that ship that life can be difficult. We don't have to live very long in this life to see that. There are stresses in life. They're not necessarily bad or good. That's part of the life that we live. And we need to work and work hard and work through it and work tired sometimes. Situations arise in life where you need to think it through and work it through. And as they worked through this difficult wind situation, we find that they make it to this town called Myra. And it's at this place is where they hop on from a, that smaller boat to the large open water boat, the one that can go through the Mediterranean, the, the big, big uh, areas of, of the lake there. But as we know, just because you're on a bigger boat doesn't mean the difficulties go away. You can just look at the Titanic, for example. But in verse 7, Luke says, We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus, and as the wind did not allow us to go farther. It didn't allow us to go farther. In other words, they could not go past Snidus because the wind was too hard and pressed too hard on them. It was strong, and so it forced them to take a detour and head more south. And so as they make this change in direction, as the wind's pushing, they, they come under the lee of this island to take some shelter from the wind. And it's there we, we hear that they arrive at this small town called Fairhavens. And we're, we're told that it, it had taken so much time just for them to get to this point because of the wind. It was so difficult. The detours and detours on the detours and now it had become unsafe to travel. You see, winter was upon them, right? The weather had started to get bad, and it was not safe to be on the open waters at this time of year. And we know this because in verse 9, we hear that the fast was over. The fast was over. The fast was in reference to the Day of Atonement. And that Day of Atonement came around September, October, and, and sailors knew and travelers knew that this really marked the end of the open water traveling season. You know why? Because the weather, the weather would start to get really bad. And so they knew this. And Paul, being a seasoned traveler, is reading the signs. Right? He, he knows. He sees the wind. He knows the time of the year. And so what does he do? He speaks up. Right? Not being in ultimate control of your situation does not mean that you don't think it through and use reason. You know? You may find yourself having to drive through a real tough, dark, dangerous neighborhood. But reason says, I'm not going to stop, get out, and say hi to the locals. Right? That's thinking it through. You know? And so Paul, reading the sign, speaks up in verse 10, and he says, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. Everyone perishing. 
And Paul, I don't believe, is speaking prophetically here. He's again reading signs. He sees danger, danger. You ever been in those situations where you're thinking, this is not going to go well. This is not good. It's like you're seeing in slow motion the train wreck is about to happen, and you're like, no. But see, being in, not in control of our situation does not mean you sit passively by and do nothing. God calls us to be busy about his business, doesn't he? We're not to sit and kind of twiddle our thumbs and think, well, I can't do anything about this, so I'll just sit back and watch everything come crashing down. No. See, we struggle with control, don't we? We think that we have a measure of control in this life, and so things should go as we see it. I have control over my situation, we say. You know, I think I have ultimate control over my TV until I can't find the TV remote. I tell you, you know, that's a real difficult situation. Just ask my wife for me. It's pretty difficult. See, the problem when you face is that the measure of control we think we have, we often project onto other people and the situations around us But when they don't do what we think they should do, and the weather doesn't cooperate with what we think it should do, we get pretty upset. Just ask the weatherman, how many times does he get it wrong? We know. See, even though you're not in ultimate control of the world around you, it doesn't mean you don't have some control of some things in life. Did you know that? God says you do have control of some things. You know what those are? Your behaviors, your words, and your actions. Not how people respond to them, but your behaviors, words, and actions. And we find Paul in this exact situation, he has control over his words, doesn't he? He speaks up. He's not a doormat. He's not a pylon. He's not passive in all of this. God is sovereign, but he is still responsible. You're still responsible, brother and sister. Going any farther is not a good idea. It, it be, will become way more than just difficult. And how does the centurion respond in verse 11? Does he listen to Paul? No, he listens to the pilot and the owner of the ship. Now, this is not unreasonable if you think about it. Paul's a prisoner. The pilot and the owner of the ship are expert sailors. See, Paul's not in control of these people. He's not in control of the weather. And so what do they do? They choose to put out to sea. Again, And the plan was just to travel a little bit farther over from Prairie Havens to a place called Phoenix. This was about 65 or so kilometers away, about a day's travel. And we are told that it's because Fair Havens did not have a good harbor to spend the winter in. Meanwhile, they think Phoenix does. And so why not just hop on this boat and go a little bit farther? You know, the weather's against us, but yeah, you know... It's not that far. Come on, it's just a little bit farther. You know, you ever make those decisions in life where, like, as soon as you make it, it's like instantly you're like, what was I thinking, you know? Seconds after you make it, and you're like, ah, why didn't I think it through? No turning around, no turning the clock back. You're riding that wave wherever it's taken you, and you're hoping there's not rocks at the end of it. This would be exactly one of those moments for Paul and them. So they decide against what Paul says to go to Phoenix. So again, I'm going to ask, what do you do when you're reminded that you're not in control? Not in ultimate control, 
What do you do when, and point two says, the difficult road becomes now the dangerous road? The difficult road becomes the dangerous road, verses 13 to 38. See, now the journey has not now become dangerous to, if they go any further. And we actually heard Paul had said this back in verse 9 when he said the voyage was now dangerous because the fast was over. You see, to go a little bit farther, yeah, they're thinking this is reasonable. It's just a bit farther. But see, the wind kept pushing them south. The wind was strong. It kept pushing them away from Phoenix. They couldn't go straight. It's just right there. But no, it was pushing them straight. They eventually had to give way to the strong wind. See, the wind was in control. It was taking them wherever it wanted to take them. And as dangerous as this situation is, it's about to get whole lot more dangerous, whole lot more dangerous. Why? Because Luke goes on to tell us in verse 14, a tempestuous wind rose up. You like that word, tempestuous? It's kind of a crazy word, tempestuous wind rose up. See, the NIV actually says it's a hurricane force wind. The NASB says it's a violent wind. This was a famous wind. It was so famous, they named it. They called it the Northeaster. You know, it's never a good thing when they name some weather pattern. Never a good thing, right? And we, we name hurricanes. We don't name little gentle breezes. You know what I mean? Gentle winds. Hey, uh, Tim, did you uh, feel that uh, old breezy today? Yeah, that was good, man. That was a good breeze. No, you name dangerous and destructive winds. And this was one of those winds. The Northeaster was, was a destructive and powerful wind. And with this wind came waves, and they came big waves. You know, it's actually a wind that's still around today. It's still coming down out of the mountains. They called, I'm going to butcher this, they called the Gregal, a Gregali. It's most frequent in the winter. It brings, as they say, destructive hurricane force winds, which cause shipwrecks. In fact, in 1555, it's reported that it caused waves that led to 600 people drowning on a city called Valletta on the island of Malta. That's a pretty dangerous wind. And Paul and them were in the middle of it. It became so dangerous that they thought this wind and waves would drive them south all the way to the north of Africa to this place called Sirtis, where it was known where ships would get stuck and be torn apart by the surf. It became so dangerous that the sailors were trying to jettison their cargo and tackle to kind of lighten the ship to get it up higher in the water so the waves wouldn't break over the sides. It became so dangerous that the dark, these, this wind brought with it these dark clouds, these menacing dark clouds that prevented them from seeing the stars and the sun, day or night. And you remember, uh, they didn't have GPS back then. They navigated by the stars and the sun. So they were blind, being tossed by these waves, carried wherever it would take them, dangerous. Not knowing if the very next crack that they hear in the hull would be their last, destroy their ship, and send them down to the depths. This was so bad of a situation that Luke records in verse 20, all hope of being saved was, was at last abandoned. They thought they were going to die. No hope. We're going down. Hopeless. Have you been in those situations in your life? This is like watching that movie where the protagonist looks lost 
You know, you cannot see anything coming to rescue him from his situation. There's no hope, no control, no special creative maneuver that he's going to do somehow to deliver him from the clutches of death. It's over. (laughs) And to put icing on this most awful tasting cake, (laughs) what does Paul say in verse 21? Uh, Yeah, you should have listened to me. You should have listened. What? Wait, seriously, Paul? You know, it's funny, though. Don't you sometimes really want to say that? You know, I told you so. Told you so. Well, to burst your bubble here, Paul is not rubbing it in their faces. He's not rubbing it in their faces. So so you cannot use this verse to support your I told you so's. Sorry. (laughs) What he's doing is he's demonstrating that he's trustworthy, that he's credible. They should listen to him because he is someone worth listening to. So in the face of your difficulties and dangers that you live, where you don't have ultimate control, are you, one, still worth listening to? And what does Paul then say? He says, take heart. Take heart, Romans. Take heart, sailors. Take heart, my fellow prisoners. And you're thinking, Paul, are you crazy? Do you not see the danger that we're in right now? What does Paul say, though? No, no, you're not going to perish. Yeah, the ship's going down, but you're all going to live. Why? Because God sent his angel today. God sent his angel, and he, said, he told me, don't be afraid, Paul. You're going you're gonna to stand before Caesar. And I often wondered, I thought, why, why did God say, don't be afraid, Paul? Because Paul was afraid. Remember, he perceived that the journey would cost them their very lives. God has graciously reminded Paul of what he had said earlier you will testify of me in, in, in Rome. And God has grace, graciously chosen to save all those who are with Paul. You know, I think God showing up here reminds us of three things in this kind of moment here. One, God sees you in your storm. God sees you in your storm. You are never really alone, Christian. You're never really alone. Two, God helps you in the midst of your storm. God helps you in the midst of your storm. Maybe not when and how you want, but he does, and he knows what's best. And finally, three, God is in control of that storm. Did you know that? God is in control of that storm. He uses the storm to carry out his purposes. The storm was no surprise to God. In fact, he was the one that sent the storm. As hard as that is to hear sometimes. The possible is about to happen. The protagonist finally now has hope Someone has come into his world, reached into his situation, and says, I will save you. Paul, you're not in control. I am. And once Paul remembered this, he could have peace. He could have peace. This is the same Paul who would, in only in a very short time, while in Rome, he would go on to write in Philippians 4, 11, 13, not that I am speaking of being in need, For I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things in him who strengthens me. See, the storms, they remind us where our strength comes from. The storms remind us of where our strength comes from. You know... It was recorded once that John Wesley, famous preacher, 
when he was crossing the Atlantic Ocean to preach in America, his ship was struck with a very violent storm. And, there, and he records this. He says, About one in the afternoon, almost as soon as I had stepped out of the great cabin door, the sea did not break as usual, but came with full smooth tide over the side of the ship. I was vaulted over with water in a moment, and so stunned that I scarce expected to lift up my head again till the sea should give up her dead. But thanks to God, I received no hurt at all, and about midnight the storm ceased. That his road was dangerous, but it would become even more dangerous. He would go on to record what happened the next day. He said, the following day was worse. At four, it was more violent than any we had had before. Now, indeed, we could say the waves of the sea were mighty and raged horribly. They rose up to the heavens above and claved down to the hell beneath. The winds roared around us. What I never heard before whistled as distinctively as if it had been a human voice. The ship not only rocked to and fro with, with the utmost violence, but it shook and jarred with such unequal grating motion that one could not but with great difficulty keep one's hold on anything nor stand a moment without it. Every ten minutes came a shock against the stern or side of the ship which one would think should dash the planks in a thousand pieces. This was a storm. And what did John do? John being really concerned with others in this ship, knowing that there were Christians down in the cabins below, he goes running down. He opens the cabin door to check on these Christians. And what are they doing? They're having a, a church service. In the midst of the storm, they're praising God. He was so shocked by this that he went up and said, are you not afraid? And they said, I thank God, no. And then he asked, well, what about your women and your children? And they replied, no, our women and children are not afraid to die. This would go on to haunt John Wesley for a long time because he knew he struggled with this kind of faith. These Christians had this unwavering faith in the midst of the storm and believed that they were in God's will, whether they lived or died, their strength came from God. Christian, do you trust that God is entirely in control, whether you live or die? God spoke to Paul in, in the midst of such a storm. You know, in some ways, Christian, God has spoken to us as well. He's given us his Bible. He's given us his word so you can listen to what God has to say when you're in the midst of the storm. For instance, Psalm 27.1 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Psalm 46.1.3 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. How about the sweet words of Jesus? I am with you always to the end of the age. The storm was dangerous. It was 14 nights of darkness, chaos, churning water, smashing waves, rushing wind, and yet there seemed to be a glimmer of hope. Or was there? See, they, the sailors take a sounding, and this was a rope that would be dropped down into the water. It had markings on it. And they drop it down to check to see the depth, how, how deep the, 
the, the ocean floor was. And they do it twice, and they see, and they start to realize that it's becoming more shallow. Now, this was not a good thing in their storm because it meant they could be hitting rocks. And the sailors realize this, and so what do they decide to do? They decide to deceive the people by making a sound like they're going to go drop some anchors. Meanwhile, they're going to, to bail. They're, they're going to hop on this lifeboat, sneaking off. You know, it's, it's a pretty bad thing when the experienced jailers say, I'm out. I experienced sailors say, I'm out of here. Like, I'm gone. Forget this. And Paul being aware of what's going on around him, sees what they're doing, and he, he approaches the centurion. He says to him, look, if these guys take off, you can't live. We, we all are done if they take off. You know, this was logical. It was reasonable. If the guys that know how to operate the ship are no longer here, who's going to operate the ship? Right? That's it. They're done. And so what do the soldiers do? Yeah, that's probably a bad thing. So, uh, no, we're going to cut the lifeboat and send it away, so you sailors are going to be here. I think this should be a reminder for us that this is an example of God's sovereignty, but man's responsibility. Man still has responsibility. God sovereignly says, Paul, you will live, and so will everyone with you. But if these men leave, you're not. How's that? God often carries out his purposes through people. He sovereignly ordains his will through the actions of people. So you are called to be busy for God. Let God deal with his things. You just obey in your thoughts, words, and actions. And so knowing that they are still in danger and they are still responsible, they take some food, they eat, they get strengthened, and then they throw the remaining food into the, into the ocean, into the sea. They jettison their cargo, their livelihood. They, they, they jettison their tackle, which is what they needed to help run the ship. And now they jettison the remaining food. See, again, God's sovereignty doesn't mean you just sit by and do nothing. God being in control doesn't mean you just passively float on the ocean. Sometimes in life, you need to jettison things in your life. Maybe you're in the storm of your own making. You've sinned, you've done and said things that have brought trials into your life, ruined relationships. Maybe you're watching things on the internet that you need to jettison from your life. Maybe you have these ungodly influences in your life and you need to jettison them. Maybe you need to jettison that real stinky attitude that's causing quarrels and fighting and ruining relationships. I'm just being real. Don't be so quick to assume you are in a storm because of someone else. Maybe you're in that storm because of your own sin. See, like Jonah, if you continue to live in that sin, if you continue to reject godly counsel and the word of God, you, you would find that your road does not stay dangerous, but it will become disastrous. But, like Job, sometimes that storm gets worse and it has nothing to do with what you've done. You, you may pray, God brings his word to you, you find hope and relief, but the storm rages on and it gets more fierce. So again, what do you do when you're reminded that you're not in ultimate control? What do you do when that dangerous road now becomes the disastrous road? The dangerous road becomes the disastrous road in verses 39 to 44. See, now verse 39, we find that the day has finally come. The storm is still raging, but it seems to have some hope. It seems like they can kind of see what's going on because they see this island off in the distance. They see a beach. 
And so what do they do? They, they throw off their anchors, they set up the sails, and they steer towards this beach. Hope is in sight. The light is at the end of the tunnel. You know, maybe, maybe, they're, maybe they are in control. Why not? But suddenly danger becomes disastrous because the ship strikes a reef. Stops dead in its tracks. In verse 41, we read that the ship was immovable. The ship was starting to break apart. That's, that's a real dangerous place to be. Bad has become worse. The sailors and soldiers and prisoners are not in control. They cannot work the boat out. No one's going to hop out and start pushing. You know, it's just not going to happen. Cargo gone, tackle gone, food gone, and soon so is the ship. This is a disaster. The, the owner of the ship is about to lose his very means of making a living. That's a pretty big deal. And when reality starts to sink into the situation, you know, the soldiers are starting to think, wait, oh, oh my goodness, if the prisoners escape, I'm going to be held accountable. I'm a dead man. So what do they want to do? They want to, they want to kill these prisoners. It looks like their lives would finally come to an end. Disaster would lead to death. And though Paul is not in control, and this is amazing, God is and shows his control by working through the centurion to save Paul and the prisoners' lives. He protects Paul and the prisoners. And so what is their solution? Well, they can't stay on the ship any longer, that's for certain. They must jump into this chaotic water. They must swim for shore. See, we find that Paul's situation did not immediately get better. It actually got worse. God spoke to him. He appeared to him, and it got worse. We can think that God only answers prayers by immediately removing us from the storm. You know what I'm saying? You, know, you pray, and suddenly he plucks you out, and he lands you on flowery hills with rainbows and sunshine. But it doesn't work that way sometimes. We can think, I've learned what I did I learned what I did wrong, Lord. I learned. Yeah, I know now. I got it. Yeah, I learned what, yeah, I messed up. I get it. I've learned. I made my mistakes. I learned. Yeah, okay, I'm good to go. You can take me out now. I got it. It doesn't work that way sometimes, does it? Sometimes you feel the shipwrecked in the storm, and God says, I need you to swim still. I'll get you to shore, but you need to swim. You need to swim. Disasters in this life can remind you who's really in control and whose strength it is that keeps you afloat. So what do you do when you're reminded you're not in control? When you have to go down that dustened, dark road. You see, dark roads do not mean that God is not in control, only that you're not. So what is our hope? You can trust God because he is in control of the difficult, dangerous, and disastrous roads you will travel. You can trust him. You can trust God because he is in control. See, the storms in life have a way of reminding us that we're not in control. They show us what we find our dependency in, don't they? When you depend on yourself to get through, you know, you pull yourself up by the bootstraps and you suck it up. And when you think, hey, I'm a self-made man and woman, I can, I can do this. I can get through this on my own. Where's your dependency? It's in you. And then this view is shattered every single time something outside yourself happens 
to remind you you're not in control. When others make decisions you don't agree with. When, when you have to do things and go places that you don't want to go to. <laughs> when the weather, weather ruins your vacation plans. You depend on yourself, you will ultimately find disappointment, pain, and fear because you're not in ultimate control, brother and sister. You know, Elizabeth Elliot once said, fear arises when we imagine everything depends on us. Isn't that true? Brothers and sisters, depend on God. He is in control. The world keeps spinning because he tells it to. Time keeps moving forward because he commands it to. And the storm comes because he has ordained it to come for your good. God understands the storms in your life because he, he brings them ultimately for your good, even if you don't understand it now. Do you still trust him? Do you trust that Jesus has ultimate control of your life? He had it with people. Just think back. Remember in the Gospel of John when Jesus was in the garden and he spoke, and what happened? They fell down. <laughs> That's control. That's power. And what happens later? He's on trial, and he says, I can, I can call a legion of my angels in a minute, and they'll fight for me. He's, he's got control. I remember John 10, 18, he says, No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. That's control. Or how about with the weather? Did he have it with the weather? Yeah, I think he had it with the weather. Remember one, one kind of windy, stormy day? What does he do? He walks on the water. That's pretty talented. I didn't say you got some control there. But what else does he do? On another stormy night, he calms the storm. He says, peace, be still. And it was still. I think to myself, yeah, if I want to get something done, i got to work hard. i got to sweat, strain my muscles, learn, apply, exhaust myself just to make something move a little bit. And Jesus speaks, done. Waves gone, wind gone. That's control. Why are you afraid, brother and sister, that Jesus can't help you? If he saved you, won't he help you now? See, our passage doesn't end there. It doesn't end with him swimming in the water. What does this say in verse 44b? It says, and so it was that all were brought safely to land. Who brought them? God brought them. God brought them safely to land. See, God turned the disastrous into a deliverance. Paul was told the ship was going down, and it did. But they all lived. As God said, God is in the business of turning those disastrous things into deliverances. He said, well, where, how, how so? Because there was another time, 2,000 years ago, there was another disaster, humanly speaking, the worst of the worst disasters that took place. An innocent man, the only ever innocent man who ever lived this life, Jesus Christ, would experience the wrath of man. He was beaten, he was mocked, he was spit upon, and he was nailed to a cross. Yeah, that's pretty disastrous. And then this innocent man, Jesus Christ, would experience the wrath of God. The fury and judgment of a holy, righteous God poured out unrestrained. 
Yeah, that seems disastrous, humanly speaking. Why? Because he was innocent. But it was through that disaster that he brought deliverance. He brought deliverance. Jesus Christ would rise from the dead. The penalty of sin paid in full. No, now those who repent and believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins are forgiven and are saved. That's quite the deliverance. You see, in one sense, that saying the darkest hour is just before dawn isn't actually true for the believer. Because before you knew Christ, you were in very dark days, the darkest of days. No matter what you were going through, it was way darker then. Prior to your relation with Christ, you were part of the kingdom of darkness. You loved darkness. You drank it down like water. You lived in darkness, utter darkness with no hope. You could not save yourself. You were destined to hell. That's pretty dark. You didn't have any ability to control the situation in such that you could save yourself. But no, God stepped into your world, reached into your situation, and said, I will save you. Wow. And now you are in Christ. Amen? So you can just be the same. You can be just like those Christians on that ship with John Wesley, where you can worship God in the midst of the darkest storms. See, as Christians, this is not our home, is it? We're just passing through. We're sojourners in, an, in the wilderness. God is leading us and bringing us safely to the true promised land. Amen? He's bringing us safely to land. You may not see God moving. You may not hear his audible voice, but he is steering your ship. There is hope, brother and sister. The storms will not last forever. The sun is on the horizon. Take heart. The dawn is coming. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you are in control. When things seem dark and scary, we look to you. We know that you are good. You are in control. Help us to trust you when we are in difficult situations, when the dangers of this life and sin entice us, when those disastrous situations arise, Lord God, that we look to you knowing that you are in control. And Lord, I just pray, would you use this and build up our faith to trust you this day, this week. In Christ's name, amen.